God, would you come by the power of your spirit and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and receptive hearts to your word. And would you give me your grace and your wisdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hi there. For those of you who don't know, my name is Joshua Iper, and I'm a deacon here at Christ the Redeemer. But some years ago, long before I was a clergy person, I once heard a story about some people who went to another Anglican church in a different city and had very strong political affiliations and leanings. I don't know which party they liked, but I, I don't think it matters. And the story is, they were going into church one morning, and they were appalled to see bumper stickers on some of the cars in the church parking lot for a political candidate from the opposite party. They were appalled that people at their church could be so wrong-headed and unchristian in their political views. And so they went in to complain to the senior priest. And to their consternation, at least the way I heard the story, he immediately got really excited that his church spanned both sides of the political aisle. I should make it clear that I have no idea where individual political leanings are, unless you've, we've happened to be in conversation and you've told me. And I should also be very clear that I make no claim to speak for the leadership of CTR or any other church, certainly not about such delicate subject as politics. With all that said, there's a part of me that loves this idea that we might have political opinions and political leanings and political affiliations that disagree with one another, and despite that, we have a deeper unity found in Jesus. At least, that's what I would hope for. And I hope that some of you agree with me in finding that idea really exciting and invigorating. But I wonder if there may be some of you also who find yourself disagreeing. If you disagree with me, I suspect maybe the difference is not just about our politics or how we weight political issues, but also about our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Is there some core identity, a race, an economic identity, a political identity, an ideology, or any other of the myriad things that divide us as humans, but is there some core of that that we have in common in order to be a Christian? In America, you might be, if, at least if you look at certain swaths of the church, you might be forgiven for answering yes. But if you look wider, if you look across time and space at the broader scope of the church, it would seem that there are people who consider themselves Christians on almost every side of some of these issues. Which leaves us with two options. I mean, one option is we start mentally cutting off the people who are not true Christians. And I should be clear that I think there are some political and even more some theological understandings and opinions that, when properly and truly understood, are incompatible with Christianity. With that said, I'm not Jesus. I 
know this comes as a shock to all of you, but I'm not Jesus, and I don't want to be the one who decides who's in and who's out. I don't think I have the power to do that, and I think it's a good thing for me and for everyone else that I don't. And so I wonder if it's possible to look to Jesus himself for our identity as Christians. What if, beyond all the ethnic, all the cultural, all the linguistic, all the economic, all the racial, and all the political things that divide us, what if our common identity as Christians is found in the fact that we all call on and we are all called by the name of Jesus? All of us are called by the name of Jesus. I hope some of you are nodding right now But if you're not, if you think that this sounds naive, if you think this sounds pointless or simplistic, let's look for a couple minutes at what a name means. Because in our culture, all too often, it's really easy to think of a name as just that thing that your friends call out across a crowded room when they're trying to get your attention. Hey, you, over there. Yeah, you, you. But in Jesus' time, in Jesus' place, Jesus' culture, a name meant so much more. It was your identity. It was who you were. It helped say what your meaning, what your purpose, what your significance in the world was. This is why the Old Testament is riddled with all these times where people would name their children these weird to us sounding Hebrew names. And then it would include this line about because they said such and so or because they were such and so. For that matter, in this very Christmas story we've been reading these last few weeks, that's why the angel keeps coming and saying, his name is Jesus because because his name meant something. And this, for that matter, is why we are celebrating the Feast of the Circumcision and Naming of Jesus. I mean, one hand, it's fairly straightforward. All Jewish males were circumcised and named on the eighth day, or at least they were supposed to be. Something had gone badly wrong if they weren't. And We have it recorded. We tend to be all about Jesus. We tend to like celebrating the things that we know Jesus did. And there is a significance in his taking on our common identity, our common humanness, doing the same things we do. But beyond that, though, I think there's more involved in his name. I think there's a reason why the Feast of the Name of Jesus is a major feast day, and we don't celebrate the Feast of the Bar Mitzvah of Jesus even though we presume he also was bar mitzvah. Because the name of Jesus meant something, and it means something. We see two threads of the meaning of Jesus' name coming together. We see two different, complementary, but slightly different accounts given of who he is, of his identity and what it means. We see the angels come and speak to the shepherds and tell them one thing, And we see Gabriel come to Mary and say to her something slightly different. And then we see both those threads come together because the shepherds come to Mary and Joseph and they tell everything the angel said. And everyone goes, wow, that's amazing. And it's not told to us if Mary and Joseph tell everything they'd heard or not. But either way, we know that Mary and Joseph knew everything. Mary and Joseph have it all together and they're the ones who take Jesus on the eighth day and name him Jesus in accordance with the words he was given. They name him Yehoshua, the Lord saves. 
backing up a little chronologically to unpack that name a little further, let's begin with what Gabriel says to Mary. He says, quote, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Immediately, we see Jesus as both the Son of God and the Son of David. This is very significant because in that culture, a son would be expected to inherit the title, the responsibilities, and the power of his father. So, going human first, who is David? What's the significance of being the son of David? And even more, what's the significance of being given the throne of David? And you all know the answer to this. David, he was the great king of Israel. He was the one who rose from obscurity. Literally, he was so obscure that he's in a little backwater village in the middle of nowhere. And when the prophet Samuel shows up to anoint the next king of Israel and tells Jesse that one of his sons is going to be it, Jesse doesn't even think it's worth bringing David in from the fields to watch. Jesse is so sure that it's not David, he doesn't even feel the need to bring him in to watch what happens. And instead... David is the one God anoints. And David is the one who leads Israel and leads them so well. He has his failures occasionally, but he rescues Israel, both from their temptation to idolatry, leading them instead into the worship of the true God. But he also beats back the enemies of Israel, the physical enemies of Israel. And this mattered tremendously to, those, to them in that day and age because Israel is a small, was a small nation and it was surrounded by much larger nations. And this was a time and place when there was no United Nations, there was no concept of international law, there were no international criminal courts, there was no need to justify why you were actually right and okay and just going to war. Instead, you got up, if you were a king, and you counted your men, and if you had more men than the other neighboring country, you went and you attacked them. It was that simple. In fact, we're told in Samuel that in the spring when kings go off to war, this is so common that there's literally a calendar season for going to war. And Israel is the smallest nation around. Maybe not the smallest, but one of the smallest. And so they're constantly in danger. They're constantly in jeopardy. They're constantly on the edge of extinction. And their temptation in view of that, most of the time is to hedge their bets. You know, they, we read about their idolatry and we go, that seems really weird. They had all these great promises from God. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the temple. They had the sacrifices. There are the priests. Why would they, th there's the story of deliverance from Egypt. Why would they throw that all over and turn to idols? And the answer is that they're not throwing it over in their mind. In their mind, they're hedging their bets by worshiping the Lord and whatever the most promising idol is. So, you know, if Baal seems to be doing, having a good year, maybe we'll sacrifice to Baal too, just on the off chance that Baal will help us out. And the irony, of course, is that over and over and over again, they're betting on the wrong horse because these idols are nothing. They have nothing. And in fact, they are all, all they're doing is alienating themselves from the true God, the one who can deliver them. 
And David is the king who gets this right. David is the king who gets both aspects of this right so much. All he has, uh, there are a host of kings after him, a host of his grandchildren, sons, grandchildren, and great, 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 great grandson. And some of them get one aspect of this right. Some of them get another aspect of this right. Some of them almost get both aspects right. And a lot of them get it all wrong. But no one does as well as David. And through this all, the one thing Israel does almost okay at is they keep hoping in the promise of God that he will one day raise up a son of David who will rule forever and who will drive the enemies of his people into the sea. They manage to hold on to that hope. And this is who Jesus is. The angel comes and says, this is who he is. He's come. He's come at last. And he's not just David to raise up and rule on the throne of David forever, but he's God too. And this is why the angels can come to the shepherds and tell them, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, he's, he's David. He looks like David. He's the same type. He's the same pattern, but he's also God's anointed. And he rescues his people. Unless you wonder, when I say he rescues his people, I don't just mean he rescues Israel. I mean he rescues us. Because we're his people too. One of the things we'll see if you read the rest of Luke is that through the whole ministry of Jesus, the weak, the poor, the powerless, the people on the margins, the even Gentiles, they come flocking to Jesus and they're never turned away. Instead, they become his people. And all too often, the people who are doing pretty well in Israel, the people who have it together, the people who you would hope would know better, they look at Jesus and go, nah, he doesn't look like it. I don't know what it's supposed to look like, but I'm pretty sure it's not that. And I'm belaboring some of this because I think that sometimes in our politics, sometimes in our culture wars, I think sometimes what's actually happening is that there's this recognition that we are small, weak, we're relatively powerless, and we are or feel like we are on the margins of the cultural centers of society or at least on the margins of whatever group we're a part of. And the temptation at that point is to lash out and to get defensive and to turn to whatever champion we think will deliver us. And we want someone to give us power and to give us maybe the power that we feel like we had in the past because history always looks a little better than the present does. Am I being a little too pointed? I hope not. And the interesting thing there is that I, I see this impulse in myself occasionally. I see this impulse in some of my friends. I see this in a lot of the discussions I see on Facebook. And it might surprise you to know that I see this sometimes on both sides of the political aisle. If you think I'm picking on one side, I don't think I am. I think I see this coming from both sides. I think I see both sides, this fear, this feeling of powerlessness, and this desire to turn to a champion. And I think it's so easy to convince ourselves that we are crying out for the next David. We want God to raise up the, that champion who's going to drive our enemies into the sea. The problem is that we just got told the next David is Jesus. 
We got told he is the champion. So if we're not turning to him, who are we turning to? We must be turning to these idols, different version, but the same idols our grandparents turned to. And this is so tempting because when we look at Jesus, you'd be forgiven for not seeing him as God's deliverer. In the same way that David comes from the outer margins of society to take on the mantle and the power and the anointing of God, you see Jesus do the same thing. This is why the angels have to go to the shepherds and, and these shepherds are on the margins of society, right? And they have to go to the shepherds and say, this is the Savior, he's Christ the Lord, he's the next David. That's what he is. Here's what he looks like. He looks like a baby. And they have to do that because if they don't do that, the shepherds are going to miss it. Everybody's going to miss it. We're all going to miss it because he looks like a baby. He looks like a baby with nothing, not even a home to rest in, literally not even a cradle, literally resting in an animal feeding trough with a king out for his blood, the, a baby who will grow up to be not much, apparently, and will die a criminal. And yet, this same baby is the power, the wisdom, the hope of God. It upends everything, our best strategy, our best hope, our best planning. And this is good news. This is great news. This is glorious news. Because ultimately, this same baby, now grown, died, resurrected, and exalted to a glory that makes the angels who appeared to the shepherds look like dirty laundry. This same baby is coming back for us, for his people. He's coming with a sword in his mouth, not just for the people who get their politics right, not just for the people who get their ideology right, not just for the people who get their lives right, but also for those of us who routinely turn to look for other things to give us power and security, for those of us who turn to whatever the idol of the month is, for those of us who don't have our lives together, for those of us who struggle with depression, anxiety, or addiction, for those of us who align with the political left, for those who align with the political right, for those who try to hang out in the political middle, for those of us who are sick to death of politics and wish Washington, D.C. would drop into the sea, for those of us who are on the right side of history, for those of us who are on the wrong side of history, but always, always, always for those of us who call on the name of Jesus. For those of us who recognize that the power, the wisdom, the love, the hope of God is in the name of Jesus. For those of us, for us, he will save us from our sins and ultimately he will save us from everything that threatens us. So my friends, this allows us to be a people known for our kindness. This allows us to be a people known for our humility. This allows us to be a people who are kind to those who disagree with us about politics, a people who are kind to people we think are kind of dumb about this stuff. It allows us to be a people with nothing to prove. It lets us be a people who can respond to whatever comes with hope and with kindness. Because no matter what happens, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the name of Jesus, the one who saves his people. Heavenly Father, would you open the eyes of our heart to see 
your power, your hope, and your deliverance in Jesus and in his name. And would you draw us away from all the idols that tempt us and into that hope. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.